Let's turn in our books of praise to Lord's Day 12. is the our teaching for today why is he called Christ that is anointed because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in his anointing, so that I may, as a prophet, confess his name, as priest, present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as king, fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. Beloved in the Lord, the threefold office of our Lord Jesus Christ is one of those teachings about our Lord that is so rich once you begin to mine the scriptures for it. It is in this threefold office that we see how our Lord fulfills everything that man was supposed to be. Everything that man was supposed to be. Our catechism focuses on the major life events of Jesus, his birth and his death and his resurrection and ascension. Sometimes it's criticized for not focusing more on the life of Jesus. However, in the name Christ itself, we found the foundation for all the deeds he did during his ministry. In fact, everything that he continues to do even now. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. An anointed one is someone who has been appointed for a special task by God. We read about the anointing of Aaron as priest. Not such a simple anointing with all the sacrifices and the spreading of blood, but still in there is the anointing of Aaron. We can see this anointing of David as king in 1 Samuel 16. Prophets, on the other hand, seem to be directly authorized through the Spirit of God. We can think of Moses at the burning bush or Isaiah in the throne room of God receiving the burning coal on his lip. In the case of Christ, we have both. If we see the baptism of Christ as an anointing, and it seems to be for Christ's baptism marks the beginning of his ministry, Right, that moment where God declares, this is my son. Then we have the water as symbol of the oil, and that is followed by a visible anointing of the spirit, the dove that comes and rests upon Christ. And in being baptized, Christ says this, it is fitting 
for us to fulfill all righteousness. In this way, Christ says that I too, bearing the flesh of sinful man, will participate in this cleansing. At the same time, he's saying, I will be everything that man was supposed to be. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, Christ fulfills man's office. First of all, in his life, that's of course question and answer 31, and then in our life, question and answer 32. One of the things the scriptures often bring out in in terms of the calling of the men who carry out the offices of prophet, priest, and king is the election of God. God has chosen them before the beginning of the world to carry out their particular calling. Now, isn't this just another way of talking about God's providence and sovereignty? In a way it is, but the anointing calls attention to the particular task that God calls these men to do. And that strengthens them as they continue to bear the burden of that task. This is a comfort to men like Moses, David, and others that God is the one who has called them. And he will strengthen them in what they are called to do. It's a comfort for Christ, that's a comfort for us, too, as we share in his calling. So God, before the foundation of the world, chose Christ to be born and at about 30 years of age to be baptized for his ministry. You can see this in the events around the advent to Christ's ministry, particularly the ministry of John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for Christ. We tend to focus on the birth of Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. It makes sense within the history of the church because the first controversies in the church were over the question of the incarnation, and that puts a lot of weight on Christmas. The scriptures put at least an equal weight on the baptism of Christ. While two of the Gospels gospels give the story of the birth of Christ, all four Gospels recount the baptism of Christ. And you can see how important it would be for the men who wrote these Gospels. Here you have the inauguration of the ministry of Christ as the one who will fulfill all righteousness, who will overcome the failures of the Aaronic priesthood, the dynasty of David, and the schools of the prophets through his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice. God is offering the new man, the new Adam. So what is Christ anointed as? The catechism begins with Christ's role as our chief prophet and teacher. This is fitting for it's the first thing that's revealed about Christ. As soon as Christ is baptized, he then goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And then immediately following that, we are told, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Immediately, we see that prophetic office. Christ himself is going to be the catalyst for the kingdom of heaven. The catechism follows that with the offices of priest and king. Even though there are many moments in Christ's life where he is revealed as a king and as a priest, it is by his love in choosing the cross that his priestly work is most clearly manifested. And once he has been resurrected and brought to the right hand of God, 
there we see the full manifestation of his royalty. So I want to pass over more comments on the prophetic office at this moment and go back to the priestly office of Christ. I'm going to come back to the prophetic office again at the end because of how essential it is to understanding what Christ came to accomplish. You might say the prophetic office of Christ is the capstone of, of his threefold office. The Catechism says this about Christ's priestly office. He is anointed to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father. We think of priests as fundamentally those who offer sacrifices, partly because we see Christ's sacrifice as so central to his role as priest. But there's something even more fundamental to a priest's role. They are servants in God's house. In this sense, Adam too, Adam's fundamental calling is a priestly calling. He is put in the garden of God to tend for it and care for it. We read from Leviticus 8. Aaron is being set up as high priest in God's house, and it's his call to see that that house is well taken care of, that it is protected from outsiders, that it is properly sanctified. And within that calling, perhaps we might say even foundational to that fundamental calling, is that proper worship is given before God. And that's where sacrifice comes in. What about the prayers that the Catechism mentions? We rarely see the prayers of any Levitical priests recorded in the Scriptures. You much more likely find a prayer from Solomon or David or from, or from one of the prophets. But we do see that the priests bring the prayers of Israel before God regularly through the altar of incense. In this way, our prayers come to the Father through Christ as well. So Christ is offering prayers for us, offering our prayers for us, purified prayers. The office of priest is the fundamental office that God has given to man. It goes back to the words of the Catechism on the creation of man. God created man so that he might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. Adam was called to leave Eve and his future family in worshiping God as service in the household of God. Once that relationship was broken... Blood was needed. Aaron had to be cleansed through the ministry of Moses so that he might become the one to represent Israel in the worship in the tabernacle. Aaron was the first servant of God in the tabernacle, God's house. But Christ is greater than Aaron. Christ willingly gave himself up as a sacrifice to bring many sons to glory. That's something Aaron couldn't do. Aaron had to be sacrificed for. Christ gave himself up 
as a sacrifice. He went into the heavenly temple and presented his blood as a fitting covering so that we may worship God in him. Aaron had to receive blood. Aaron had to be covered by blood on his ear, thumb, and toe. God set Christ, his son, over all his house as head of the church and over all the universe as king. And the third office given here is that of a king. The catechism says that he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. We follow the law of Christ. The king, however, is also the first warrior. David, for example, was the great warrior of his day. So there's a struggle involved in being king. And even that struggle, Christ is no longer struggling himself, but he is working out that struggle in us. We might ask then, how was, how was Adam a king? Not so much in war, but in his call to take dominion of the world around him. He was called to go beyond the garden and to begin the work of gardenifying the rest of the world. This dominion is earned through tests of the king's strength and will. However, all must be done in complete reliance on God. That means suffering. Look at David's life before he becomes king, before he actually becomes, he's anointed, but it takes a while before he actually is anointed as king over the people. He's chased through the wilderness for years before he becomes king. God uses his suffering in order to the greater show his own glory, in order to teach David humility, in order to prepare him for wise ruling, for wise kingship. And in the same way, Christ as king suffers. Christ, while he was on earth, wrestled with his calling to defeat Satan. Christ is the suffering king. Animal sacrifices do not suffer in the way Christ did in the Old Testament. They are quickly and efficiently killed. So it's as king that we need to see the suffering of Christ. He must suffer in order to prove his kingship. The cross must come before the crown. There's a very real sense in which our king continues to be with us in our suffering today. Christ doesn't need to add anything to his sacrifice, but we see in his prayers for the church and his hope for the kingdom a deep sympathy and love for those who are called to follow in his footsteps. And when we come to our call as kings, that's what we need to remember. But now let us go back to the first office. We're told in the catechism that Christ is our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. It's important to remember here the primary call of the prophet is not to tell the future. That's a very small part of the prophet's calling. Instead, the prophet is called to present the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. In this way, all of Scripture is prophecy. That's why 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are often called prophetic books by the Jews in the first century. Prophets are also builders. We might call them world builders. In this way, they reflect the work of God in Genesis 1. Moses speaks God's word and so becomes God's instrument in building up the establishment of Israel. We can see that in Leviticus 8. Moses is the one who ordains Aaron. He is the one that God uses to inaugurate or to be the founder of the administration of the law. Christ is so much more than that. Christ is the word who speaks out a new creation. And he builds this new world through his body. When Christ calls, when he, when he, when he calls Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting through those words, Christ is forming a new part of his body. Hebrews has this to say, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. In this sense, the office of prophet is a capstone office for Jesus Christ. It affects everything about his ministry. And we need to make this point too. And all these offices, in fact, seem to indwell one another. The call to pray... That's something God reveals in prophets as well as the ability to sacrifice. Right? Moses and Samuel both sacrifice. Moses sacrifices for Aaron when he is anointed. Even though the king is not in charge of worship, he is over the household of God like the high priest, though in a different way. But in Christ, all these offices come together. That brings us to our third point. Christ fulfills man's office in our life. I think here of Romans 8. God condemned Christ in the flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law may be filled in us. We are baptized into Christ and that too is our anointing. In Leviticus 8, Aaron is sanctified by receiving blood on his right ear, his right thumb, and on the toe, big toe of his right foot. When we are sprinkled with water, according to Romans 6, all our members belong to Christ, and we are in turn called to sanctify them as instruments of righteousness. Our body is presented to Christ as something that has been brought from death to life. 1 John 2. 
You have the anointing of the Holy One, and therefore you know all things. We know the full secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Christ has revealed it to us because we share in the same spirit he has. We are prophets in him. According to the catechism, that means we confess his name. That is really the simplest way to put it. We announce the fullness of redemption in Jesus. And that confession is a two-sided coin. Whenever we confess, we also witness. When we sing the Apostles' Creed in the afternoon, we at the same time bear witness to Jesus. When we say, I am a Christian, that too bears witness to Jesus. It's more difficult in the world we currently live in because so many people will say, I am a Christian and have no idea what that means. To the point where homosexual couples will happily tell you, we are Christians without attempting to change anything in their lives. But I am a Christian means confessing that all that is written in the scriptures is true. And especially those parts about our Lord Jesus and what he did for us. To confess Jesus' name is to confess the entirety of Scripture. Here we also have a role in building the house of God. We are being built into the house of God. We are living stones, as Peter calls us in the, in the book of First Peter. But we also build up one another through encouragement, through, and we think of the history of the church here, in writing prayers, hymns, theological works, and many other products that formed by Scripture form others. It's all part of our confessing. And the catechism itself is an example of that. Finally, and most wonderfully, we continue continually bring in new living stones through the announcement of the gospel of Jesus. In him, speaking his word, we too are world builders. And I should add this clarification here. All that the church has produced through the illumination of the Holy Spirit is continually tested by the very word that formed them. So even in this, we are continually tested, tried, renewed. If we disagree on what the Bible says, we'll shortly sing Psalm 72 together. And I imagine that when we get into the particulars, we might have a different idea of what the helpless poor he will deliver and hear them when they call might look like today. Here we do need a great deal of humility to recognize our own failings and things that are uncertain. We trust that our king has the perfect understanding of what the justice detailed in Psalm 72 looks like. Here let us begin by confessing the center, the righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of his spirit, and the patience of God. We trust that he will do what is right, and it might even surprise us. We might need greater transformation in our understanding of the righteousness and holiness of God. 
Therefore, in our prophetic task, let us be patient with one another with the long-suffering patience of God. That brings us to our role as priests. As priest, according to the, the catechism, I present myself as a living sacrifice to God. How do I do that? Not for me, but for the sake of others. If a priest is a household servant and the people of the church are the household or the temple of God, then I am a servant to that household. I minister to my brothers and sisters. I bear with them in their weaknesses. I pray for them. My life is presented as a sacrifice, not for myself, but for others. My life is worship. And of course, fundamental to that is the corporate worship of God, the foundational work of our fundamental office. This is something that our world doesn't understand today, and in some ways, we bear some of the blame. I'm not sure we always understand the fundamental nature of worship or what worship is. Worship is hearing the minister speak for our sake, to actively take in that word and to commit ourselves to it. He's appointed to bring a burden to the congregation of God. Worship is hearing God speak. Worship is singing to one another, as Paul puts it in Colossians. Worship is praising God and praying for one another. Worship is sharing of our gifts, and worship is demonstrating our desire to participate in Jesus through the ritual of the Lord's Supper for the sake of one another. If something can be gained from our current separation from worship, I hope it is a renewed understanding of, desire for, and greater vigor in our worship, a greater understanding of our priestly office. Finally, we are kings. We are engaged in a struggle in this life. We bear a cross in our fight against sin and the devil. This doesn't merely refer to our own sinful hearts. This refers to our struggle with powers and principalities of this world. The lies and the philosophies that dominate my neighbor's heart, perhaps my heart as well, The Catechism adds that I can fight with a free and good conscience. And this is so important. You don't want to go into the war maimed. You don't want to go into the war ready to run away at any moment. The war, this war is possible because even though I do fail, Christ has covered all my sin. That means when I fail, I can get up again and keep on fighting, knowing that whatever sin I committed, however I may have botched that conversation or lost my cool, I can continue on with a clean conscience. All this enables me to grow in my understanding of how to live for Christ. And it's so important to end with this free and good conscience. I'm justified in Christ, and therefore, that is the foundation for my continual renewal, for my dying of the old man and coming to life to the new. Compared to Christ, my office bearing has a miserable record. Yet, I am washed in his blood and transformed in his spirit so that I am free to continue to fill that office 
in him. And I do this in hope. I will reign with Christ. In a sense, I already have a taste of that in that I know that I have the king's ear in my prayers. But my hope comes from the fact that this struggle will come to an end and I will reign with Christ. This knowledge, too, should give us perspective on the things that divide us today. We struggle in our own lives, and the church being itself a body will always struggle with lies and sin in her midst as well, and uncertainty. But we have a common hope. We are heirs together. Keep in mind the words of Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All glory to be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 72. We'll sing verses 7, 8, 9, and 10.